Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> I have been encouraged to see during this week that I have not yet been placed in the situation in which a bishop was placed when he turned up at a country church and noticed that there were only three elderly people in the audience. And as he climbed into the pulpit, he quietly whispered to the local vicar, and he said, did you tell them I was coming? And the vicar said, no, I didn't, but word seems to have got around. <laughs> it is immensely encouraging to see you all here yet again. And we're going to continue to look now at chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. I want to read some verses in it. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We have seen that this book of Daniel is simultaneously an analysis of some of the most powerful witness to God that this world has ever seen. A supreme example of the nation of Israel, represented by these four young men doing what God had called them to do, to be a powerful light to the Gentiles. It is also an analysis of how the pagan emperor Nebuchadnezzar came step by step to believe in the God of these four young men. We've seen too how Daniel and his friends at university set their horizon 
and deliberately decided that they would not compromise with the idolatrous interpretation of the universe that lay behind the educational system in Babylon. That is, they narrowed one horizon because they had a bigger horizon. They did not believe that this universe was all that existed. And so they were committed to that ultimate horizon that realizes that there is a God transcendent beyond space and time who created this universe and all in it. And they were determined to follow him and witness for him. We saw that they were brilliant. But then we found in chapter 2 that the argument takes a stage further. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that it wasn't sheer brilliance alone, but that there was another category which he'd never come across before, and that is the genuine category of revelation. There is a God who can speak and reveal things that unaided human intellect cannot penetrate. And we saw yesterday those horizons that were set in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, short term and long term. He had to realize that he'd been given his power. There was a power beyond his power and beyond this very world. Secondly, he had to realize that there was a horizon set on his holding of that power. And he was given a glimpse into a distant future when the horizon of earth would be broken and a supernatural stone would come breaking into all the instabilities of earth and its kingdoms and provide ultimate stability. And it reminded us of the fact that in this life already, we can plant our feet on that stone. And now this chapter before us will tell us about three young men who understood stability and where it lies. Nebuchadnezzar, the dream literally went to his head. He was told correctly by God that he was the image of gold and it seems to have festered in his mind until it drove his egoism to produce a colossal, external, literal statue of gold. The fact that he did so shows that he didn't grasp the lesson. It's sad in a way, but in another way it's very encouraging because God didn't write him off at this stage, but give him a further chance and opportunity to see the difference between his paganism and genuine belief in God. This statue of gold was gigantic. It was about 30 meters high, and it dominated the landscape. It was an image. It was an image of Nebuchadnezzar's God. At least that's what the people were told it was. However, you can see what he really believed about his own image by what he said to Daniel's three friends when they defied him. If you do not bow down to the image, he said, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace then What God would be able to rescue you from my hand? Not the hand of my God, my hand. It was a 
physical representation, barely veiling Nebuchadnezzar's own power. And so the issue at stake is this. Is there such a thing as absolute power? We saw that Daniel is an analysis of two trends. One, the relativizing of the absolute. But now we're going to see one supreme example, which has been repeated many times in history, of the absolutizing of the relative. The basic lesson of chapter 2 is that no earthly political system, however good and enlightened, has absolute value. And Nebuchadnezzar sails past the red light. And he decides that he is going to set up his state as an absolute. It's been done many times, of course, with tragic consequences. Because world leaders have noticed that religion and the religious feeling in general are very strongly rooted in the human personality. And if they can be harnessed for political purposes... They provide an excellent tool for manipulating the masses and bringing them unto some kind of obedience. It was used in the Babylonian Empire. It was used in the Egyptian Empire. It was used at the end of the Roman Republic when some of the emperors insisted on being publicly worshipped by gods as gods with death for those who refused. It was used in my lifetime and it's still being used. Albania was a notable example when the school hymn books were rewritten in praise of Enver Hodja. And in so many countries, images of the leader fill every office, hang from every public building to remind people of who is in power and woe betide them if they do not give absolute loyalty to the state. And you notice that the crowd that was assembled here were not the ordinary people. They were the top politicians, the top lawyers, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the top financial people, the magistrates, and all the officials. These were the very top people that were invited to come and publicly declare their loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. So we're in the area of thought and mind control, which is an issue that is very important in our contemporary world. How will you control the global village that our earth has become? And so this assembly of the power brokers of Babylon had to stand in front of an image how utterly demeaning it is to the human personality to be forced to bow to a mindless image. And yet they had to do it. The best orchestra was there. Music is a wonderful gift, isn't it? We've experienced at this conference, and there's not nothing like, in my opinion, listening to a world-class male voice choir or an orchestra. But music is not neutral, is it? 
Music can raise your mind and heart to the highest levels of praise, but it can also dull your inhibitions so that you do things that you wouldn't normally do. And the people that organize rave parties know that very well. Do you read the lyrics of the songs you buy? Or is the throbbing tune enough to anesthetize you to the content of so many of our contemporary songs that actually undermine systematically and deliberately the very basis of the morality of our society? That's a major topic in itself. Music is not neutral. And we have sung some of the most magnificent hymns written in our generation this week. But there are other songs that are being sung. And they're being sung by the very same people who sit in this audience. Because some of us haven't woken up to the immense effect of musical lyrics written to powerful beats undermining the very moral fabric of your life and you know don't you that it's much easier to do things when the music is throbbing at a party than it is when you're feeling fit and alert in the morning don't get me wrong I love music but I realize what was being done here Nebuchadnezzar rightly felt there might be some people a bit reluctant in this audience to bow down, so he was lifting their inhibitions and removing them. They could regret it afterwards if they liked, but he would have them down on the floor. But music was clearly not enough. And now he issued a threat that anybody who didn't bow down would be cast alive into a burning furnace. This is absolutism, isn't it? This is an expression of the utmost intolerance. People were not allowed to freely decide to worship according to their conscience. This was the exact opposite of what a free society is supposed to stand for. It was an enforced political correctness. And in Europe, millions of people swim like lemmings in the direction of political correctness and don't realize the stealth effect in the undermining of people's confidence and in the undermining of their courage to stand up and be counted for God. And I want you to imagine the scene. And when the music played, they fell like one man onto the ground except for three men who stood straight. Must have been a big crowd because Nebuchadnezzar had to be told that there were men who were not obeying his command. And Nebuchadnezzar was told by the very men whose lives had been saved by Daniel in the preceding episode that he records. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. It wasn't true, was it? Not completely. 
The second two parts were true. They didn't serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. They didn't worship the image that he'd set up, but they did pay attention to him. They were among his most loyal civil servants. What they weren't prepared to do was to obey Nebuchadnezzar when he started to invade territory in their private space, which is and should be only given to God. They believed that Nebuchadnezzar's power, as Daniel had said it in the previous chapter, had been given to him by God. And that basic principle is enunciated for us in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Everyone, he says, must submit themselves to the governing authorities because there is no authority except that which is God has established. And Paul dared to say at the time of Nero that the powers that be ultimately are allowed to rule with delegated authority by God and therefore are to be publicly prayed for by Christians. Christians are not subversives. They're not insurgents. They're not subtle terrorists. They're followers of Christ whose kingdom is not of this world. And so what's going on? Well, the powers that be are ordained of God. But that doesn't mean that we are to do everything that the government says, especially when it starts to conflict with the fundamental and prior duty of acknowledging the absoluteness of God. And so there came a conflict. Nebuchadnezzar was claiming to be an absolute. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that God was the absolute. Are we under obligation? to obey commands that directly go against what God says. Well, in the New Testament we see at the very beginning of the Christian church, the authorities in Jerusalem forbade Peter and John to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And they were perfectly clear in the response. Judge for yourselves, they said, whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They were put in prison for it. But they didn't start a riot or a revolution. They accepted the penalty. Sometimes God delivered them. Sometimes God did not deliver them. Eventually, Peter and Paul and many of the others paid the ultimate price with their lives for their determination to obey God rather than men at this level. Think of these three. As they stand before the king, still young men, our God who we serve, they quietly say, Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, is able to save us, but he may not. But if he doesn't, your majesty, we just want you to know that we're not going to bow. It's magnificent, isn't it? They didn't know a hundredth of what you know. They may have known that there was a coming Messiah, 
but they got the guts to stand. We need to think about it, don't we? Their courage was not conditional on God rescuing them. They'd committed their lives into the hand of God, whatever the ultimate outcome would be. What a tragedy it is when people sometimes get it into their heads that they can insist on God following a particular plan of action in their case. And then when it doesn't happen the way they had planned it, their faith gets devastated. This is a very deep and mature faith that we're seeing here. We wouldn't presume to know what God would do, the young man said. But we want you to know whatever happens, we're not going to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar lost his temper. He became nearly as hot as the furnace in his rage and he ordered the fire heated so hot that it started to burn up the people who were tending it. And he threw them into the fire. And at that point, something remarkable happened because the king himself looked into the fire and to his utter astonishment, he saw firstly that the men were loose and alive and walking around in the fire. And then he discovered there were four in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar thought as he looked that the fourth looked like a son of the gods. Astonished. He called to them and told them to come out of the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar was so overwhelmed at what had happened that he praised the God who had delivered them. 